This is a Culture Inject production. Hello, my name is Laura and welcome to the Nevers Podcast. Today on our show, I'm joined by Chirag, who is my awesome co-host, uh, and we're going to talk about episode two of the Nevers titled Exposure, so stick around. If you would like to follow us online, visit our website at hbothenevers.com, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at hbothenevers, and at Podcast without an A. Stream The Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere else you can stream podcasts. Uh, any ideas, interview requests, comments, or questions can be sent to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. Please also rate and review our podcast as it helps us move up the charts and get seen by more eyeballs. So... The Nevers Podcast ranks number 34 on Apple Podcasts. Uh, to put this in perspective, Apple Podcasts ranks the top 200 podcasts in any given category. That's quite an achievement for us. Uh, so thank you listeners for tuning in and we hope you stick around. Uh, the Nevers premiere draws 1.4 million plus viewers across linear and digital and is the best ever original series debut on HBO Max. Awesome. Okay, so a few public reviews of Touched, the first episode. So we have Beth Finn on Google. She says, I can't tell you how odd it felt to have moments of genuine laughter again, genuine surprise, and genuine astonishment. It reminded me of everything that's supposed to be great about television, but rarely gets seen. Quality while still giving you a complex and brilliant cast of characters. I applaud the premiere and can only say one word, more. If you're a fan of sci-fi, fantasy, Victorian England, and have noticed a huge draught and lackluster shows being the remains of the day, fasten your steampunk buggy belt and hold on. You're in for a treat. Thank you very much, Beth Finn, for <laughs> sending that over. Uh, we've got another one from Karen Swinburne. After the complete disappointment I felt after watching the first episode of The Irregulars on Netflix, I didn't really feel like getting excited over The Nevers, but I was very pleasantly surprised. For me, the pacing of the character introduction felt just right, revealing only a little at a time about them using dramatic music and no words spoken by anyone until the two central female characters came together on screen. Fight scenes were well choreographed and exciting to watch. The language was believable and the situations decidedly more adult than the irregulars. The use of CGI was not obtrusive enough uh, that I was ever drawn out of the story and back to reality. Thank you for that one. Okay. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of points of comparison to the irregulars. I haven't, I haven't heard of that show. Maybe it's something. No, I haven't either, actually. <laughs> all right. So not not all reviews are positive. Here we have Mitzi Ravencraft who wrote. Very confusing. Too hard to follow. Really wanted to like this, especially given strength and power to women and the so-called touched, and I even like the Victorian setting, but the inconsistencies of the characters and how they fit into the scheme of things was confusing. From the jumbled up plot to the ending of the first episode with the spaceship slash alien was just too over the top. Adding to the confusion was so many plots thrown at you all at once there was so much discord, 
For some, this could be a challenge, figuring out the conglomeration of ideas like a broken puzzle, but for me, I like at least a bit of cohesiveness. Okay, well, I, I appreciate your thoughts, Mitzi Ravencraft, and I totally empathize with that. <laughs> there certainly was a montage with a bunch of different characters thrown at us, the whole kitchen sink, and, you know, I understand that. Yeah, no, totally. And I think the second episode is a bit of a change of pace, so... They might change their mind, you never know. <laughs> uh, so the synopsis of our second episode, um, Exposure, aired on April 18th, 2021. So with the city reeling from Malady's opera debut, Mundy takes a personal stake in tracking her down, while Amalia launches an investigation of her own. Lavinia Bidlow seeks to destigmatize the touch at a society event. Hugo Swan enlists Lavinia's younger brother, Augie, to help monetize his illicit enterprise, and the deranged doctor conducts a series of experiments. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and remind the viewers of our cast and crew, some of whom are new. So introducing, we have Ella Smith as Desiree Blodgett. We have Dominic Fragel as Beth Cassini. And this episode was written by the wonderful Jaina Spenson, and directed by Joss Whedon. So, uh, like I just mentioned, I think the pacing was definitely different. This episode definitely calmed down, I think, in terms of pacing. Um, gave you a lot more room to breathe and take things in. Uh, I'm not saying... I mean, I enjoyed the pacing of the first episode, but um, yeah, this one felt more uh, sectioned off. Like, here's a bit here, and then we're back here, and then there's the next bit. Um, introduced new characters as well. I liked our new character, Desiree. It's Desiree, isn't it? Yeah, Desiree. Yeah, I thought that she was fantastic. What I didn't like. Uh, just overall in TV and stuff, I'm not a fan of like sex and nudity. <laughs> so obviously this episode takes our first look at the, um, the Ferryman's Club. So, you know, I was expecting it, obviously, but... Um, I mean, it was done in a way that I don't think it was, like, terrible. When it when it fits the story, I don't mind it so much. But um, I don't generally enjoy watching stuff like that. But um, but you can't really... Yeah, you can't really avoid it when it's heavily in the story like that. So, um, yeah, what about you? Yeah, so, uh, so I just wanted to kind of... Uh, before we do a beat-by-beat -beat examination of this episode, I, I have a bunch of kind of, like, front-loaded thoughts I want to get through to kind of talk about this episode holistically in terms of uh everything as a as a uh, uh, as a, how everything works together essentially so what i noticed in this episode is uh, there was a very strong kind of thematic through line of betrayal in this episode if i had any kind of power with hbo i would have called this episode betrayed uh, I it, maybe that's too on the nose, but I'll go ahead and talk about all the instances of betrayal that we have in this episode. So first, we we start with Beth Cassini, the Italian shop retail worker, who gets betrayed by her friend, who kind of sends the cops towards her way after initially uh, implying that she's trustworthy because you know she's like I I wouldn't mind being touched, and then she she gives up her friend who is touched to the cops. And also, we see Beth Cassini get betrayed by the flyer with Amalia True's face on it. Uh, we have Augustus betraying Penance's friendship after his conversation with Lavinia. 
we have the reveal that Mary Brighton betrayed her plans to marry Inspector Frank Mundy by leaving him at the altar. We have Amalia betraying Malady, or as she is now called in this episode, Sarah, in the past, which we'll talk more about later. And we have Lavinia exposed at the very end as the ultimate betrayal. So just kind of segueing from that into what Lavinia means in this episode, Lavinia Bidlow. The way that I saw this episode, it felt like it was building up to that ultimate reveal in the end. There were little pieces of evidence that I noticed throughout, scattered like a trail of breadcrumbs to the villainous reveal. So I I wanted to talk about the first piece of evidence that I saw. The first intimation that I had that something is wrong with Lavinia Bidlow as a character when she invited all of the touched to attend her party. Talking about that scene, she had all of the touched wear identifying ribbons to mark themselves the touched. And if the viewers will remember anything, or listeners, I guess, this isn't a a viewable podcast. (laughs) If the listeners will remember anything about history, I, I, I saw a very clear parallel here. The, the Nazis had implemented a law that all Jews were to wear an identifying badge called the Jewish badge to mark themselves as Jewish. And this was a prelude to deporting them to ghettos and death camps. I noticed that parallel right away. But initially, I, I thought, okay, it's, just, it's a stupid little ribbon. It's probably not a Nazi parallel. And then... And then immediately after the the show drops another piece of evidence in Lavinia's conversation with Augustus. She uses very explicit kind of racist language uh, espousing the Nazi ideals of otherism, dehumanization, when she tells Augustus they cannot have an Irish girl bear the Bidlow name. And of course we see at the very end that Lavinia's literally bankrolling an underground kind of Auschwitz and is the boss of the cartoonishly evil doc- Nazi doctor. And I yeah. and uh, just to kind of like talk about, I don't think it's a coincidence that the first girl we see who's kidnapped by the evil Nazi doctor, uh, Beth Cassini, is from Italy. Italy was the only other European Axis power in World War II. They collaborated with Nazi Germany. And right before Penance leaves Lavinia's party, we see Myrtle Haplish kind of talking in foreign tongues. And one of the ladies says, oh, 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 that's German. And I think that was a thematic Easter egg for the people who caught the ribbons reference. So I, I thought I thought that was a very interesting historic parallel. And just in terms of historically... At the end of the Victorian era, when uh, the, the global tensions were starting to rise, that was when World War One and World War Two began to really gestate in the social political womb of society. And you know, the very last line Lavinia says in this episode: "This is not fun. This is war." Yeah. It 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 feels like there's a lot of these little tidbits being dropped around. To, to give us clues as to what would ultimately happen with Lavinia. And that kind of 
ties in with people are not who they seem in this world. Like, you would think this progressive-minded, benevolent benefactor in a wheelchair couldn't do that much wrong. And she's introduced in this episode as a kind of a savior figure, like a powerful ally. Because when the cops are raiding the orphanage, it's Lavinia to the rescue. And we're on her side, and we're glad that she's on our side. But very gradually throughout this episode, they lay out these hints that no, she's not really on our side. First with the ribbons, then with the conversation with Augustus, and finally with the big reveal at the end. So I thought, like, just in terms of what I appreciated in this episode, I thought that the thematic cohesiveness and how everything in this episode has a purpose and isn't there by accident. I really appreciated that. And we'll talk about this more, but one of the things that kind of I didn't love was that Amalia and Malady were old friends. I thought that was a bit convenient, almost nearing cliche. Like it was a bit like a, uh, like a, a Luke, I am your old friend, Sarah, I, I don't know. It felt it, it felt too convenient for me. But other than that, I really enjoyed this episode as compared to the first pilot episode. It was a bit smaller scale and more intimate. It was less visually grandiose, but it it also had a lot more, you know, interesting conversations to it. Yeah, I think it definitely delved into more um, just deeper into people's characters um, and their backgrounds. Yeah, the betrayal thing is interesting because I picked up on a few bits, but marking it all the way through the episode, yeah, now you say it all, it's very clear. Bidlow, she's... It's hard because you could still mark her as a villain or is she actually still trying to help them? We're not sure. We don't know what's going on with the light underground. And even if she's not um, helping them in the way that you would like because she's using people and turning them into zombies or whatever... You know, it could still be her way thinking that she's helping. I feel like people are going to get super complicated as this show goes on. Yeah, there's Uh, definitely layers of complexity to it, yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's going to be, because it's just personal view, isn't it? Like, even talking about things like Nazis, that's their belief. Do you know what I mean? They they believe that what they're doing, I suppose, is right. Every villain Um, thinks they're the hero, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you have more major points you wanted to speak about? No, no more major points. We can kind of like uh, dive into the beat by beat analysis starting at the very beginning of the episode. Yeah, so I was gonna yeah jump in. So we're introduced to Beth Cassini. So she's the retail worker and she can levitate objects by touching them. So we see her gloves and there's a hole in her glove. And the manager's making a big deal of it. But then we see that it's a big deal to her as well because when she accidentally touches something, it starts floating. And obviously this is bad because uh, the um, touched are still pretty feared in society. And it launches this whole scene through the through, through the shop, even including a floating polar bear. <laughs> and then obviously you see her friend, or who you would assume to be her friend, betray her, which... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have expected that. And then, as you mentioned, she picks up the flyer, which which I didn't think about, but as you say it, that is another betrayal because she's been tricked and um, betrayed into going to this place. I noticed a very strong vibe um, of, like, predatory 
men throughout this episode. Like Beth, Beth's boss uh, is in one of the most uncomfortable scenes, straight up oh, yeah. sexually harassing her, and then she basically runs from one scary man to the next. Yeah, it's it's very it's very like visceral the kind of fear, uh, the the men coming up to her, the man in the alley. It's very interesting the way the environment feels. And then obviously at the end, well, even when she sees a, a lady who you think is going to help her, even that is an ultimate betrayal because it just throws her straight to the doctor. Um, and we see the doctor experimenting on her and at the end we see that she's, you know, one of these mindless um, people working, digging underground for um, Lavinia Bidlow. So that's a character that's kind of met and <laughs> dealt with pretty quickly. <laughs> Uh, whereas Desiree, who we meet, um, who is a whore whose power makes people, both men and women, tell her everything on their minds. You know, she's one that's going to be sticking around, we presume. She's hilarious. <laughs> um, meeting her and when with her little boy, when she says... So she swears and then she calls her little boy and my mind goes, oh, she's going to tell him to cover, cover his ears or something. And she just tells him to take his hat off because it's clearly <laughs> rude having his hat off indoors. Like that's rude, but all the swearing is totally fine. And that she talks so much and is so loud and he doesn't talk and that her power is to make people talk, but he doesn't talk. It's, um, it's, it's just funny. Um, and obviously she gets Amalia talking in what we have seen the most honest portrayal of herself yet. I really like, she says, uh, she grabs the maps and she says, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not from here. So now I'm questioning, well, where is she from? Where is she from? That's all that's on my mind now. <laughs> yeah, I love I love this character's introduction too. It, I, I guess a sex worker deals in intimacy and boundaries. I would assume yeah. I've never been a sex worker myself, so I'm not sure. <laughs> but that, I mean, that that's a kind of like an organic power that would sprout. But not, I, not yeah. only is her character delightful to watch on screen, but she's also kind of a story vehicle for getting inside these characters' heads. She's, a, what I would compare her to, she's, a, she's kind of like a lasso of truth that, that that I, Aquaman can sit on and <laughs> verbalize for us his internal conflicts is it's a really neat storytelling device that's that's <laughs> also a fun character to watch. Yeah, I think um, it's a really good way, yeah, to find out information. Obviously, um, Amalia takes her to see Mundy, Inspector Mundy, and um, he just starts reeling off everything. What I like is that she stops him. You know, she gets the information she needs. She doesn't want to. Um, embarrass him or bring up stuff that's completely unnecessary. Right. You know, she's not there to do that. She's there for the job and the information. Because um, he starts talking about, um, obviously, his marriage, well, marriage to be that never happened. And then he says that, you know, it's probably the job that scared her away, but there are other things. So now we don't know what these other things, other things are. And she does mention in that scene... That she's very used to violence, and I think um, the inspector mentions her late husband, which maybe I'm misinterpreting, but it it seems almost like 
she's she's used to violence as a result of her late husband. Maybe there is some, I don't know, physical, domestic abuse involved in that relationship. Maybe it's too soon to kind of jump to that conclusion. Yeah, I think that's what he was implying. Whether that's what went down or not, that's I think that's what he was thinking. So yeah, I think that's definitely the direction they're probably going to go. So it's what I wonder how he met um, his demise. Yeah. Speaking of that yeah. scene, they they kind of reveal more of what exactly Amalia's turn is. It's referred to as a rippling, and it reveals fragments of future events. She can she can't change the future. She can only witness snippets of it. So what are mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think I said on the last episode um, how I liked that she's just like pulled into the future. It's you know she's not in control. I also like in this episode she says you know he asks her if she can change the outcome, and she says no. She says no flat out. Like she's makes me wonder whether she's tried it. You know whether she's tried her hardest to not end up where she needs to be because all we've seen so far is her pick up. Uh, see, you know, the future and directly go. She uses that to directly go to where she's seen herself. So I'm wondering, can we... I'm intrigued to see what happens if she doesn't try to go because, yeah, how would she end up there? Do you know what I mean? How is she going to end up at the opera if she doesn't directly go to the opera? But she's saying that she can't... Yeah, that was my thought. You know, when I'm just like finding little plot holes here like hang on a minute how yeah i was just wondering <laughs> that was my yeah, thought it, about the future it's almost like she's <laughs> it's almost like she's playing it out like she's she's yeah she's playing the role that her her visions are telling her to play but i yeah. i appreciate that i like the confusing snippets i think confused characters figuring things out is a good analog for me as a viewer because i'm also trying to figure things out and yeah. um i was just wondering you know like if, if there's a uh, like a Victorian lottery ticket, if she could calibrate her visions for that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Show me some of those winning numbers. We don't need Lavinia anymore. It's our own orphanage. So uh, just moving on to the next scene in the show, we have an exchange between Lord Mathen and Hugo, in which we learn that Hugo had a brother who drowned. Yep. So this is great because obviously from the first episode we're like, oh, you know, he's just this guy and he's living carefree, but he's obviously from a well-to-do family. And here we're learning uh, that not only does he have a brother that drowned, um, but it was the brother that was the be- you know, the better of the two that would have probably gone on to be a great man, um, especially at this gentleman's club, uh, by their standards. Uh, but also now his father is suffering from Alzheimer's um, and is not the man he used to be. And he makes light of it and Masson obviously doesn't like that. Um, it's just that thing, isn't it, to be the failure of the family, uh, failure of the family as it, as it is. Yeah, so is it really... I mean, because he could have fallen back and done literally nothing. Even though it's in his own way, he's building a business, you know? So is he really a failure? Right. Yeah, I guess that's something we, we're going to have to continue to, to learn as we move forward. We also learned in that scene that Hugo Swan was physically abused by his father. Yes. I think that adds a lot of new layers of personality to both Hugo and Masson. And then the scene between the two of them, it really establishes 
that these guys are going to be bumping heads like American football players. They're going to be they're going to be linebackers just hitting each other right right in the bingo. Uh like uh Messin kind of leaves them with the last with the last word with a, almost like a threat. You you are going to drown just like your brother. And I think that's going to cause I mean it's going to be a lot of intrigue going forward how the interaction between these two people plays out for sure. And then we have we learn that Hugo's father was a brilliant scholar. Um, you know, he's he's got some mental deterioration. And then in the following scene, as we as I talked about just in my initial impressions, we have the party where Lavinia invites Penance and a few of the other touched from the orphanage to come over and you know, help with the PR. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so obviously initially I feel like the girls will have different instant reactions because it's like, on the one hand, yay, we're getting to go to this big socialite party um, and mingle with people when they're probably, you know, 99% of the time in the orphanage and don't go out because of safety. And then the other half is, wow, now we're just kind of like, what are we, performing like circus freaks or something? You know, um, yeah, they're called the entertainment. It's like they're yeah. they're trotted out, very dehumanized, and then again, like with the ribbons, the ribbons are yep. so clearly like a like a badge of like a dehumanization badge. We identify as the touched. Look at us, we're the monkeys. Yeah, yeah, it's um, and even at the party, you know, it's that thing of I never understand when um people hate people of difference for whatever reason. Yet they're happy, seemingly, for them to work for them or provide entertainment. You know, you just kind of like, where, why? I've never, just don't understand it in the world. Because if you fear these people, you hate these people, why would you want them in your home? It, it, it's that, you know, you're happy to parade them, put them on show, whatever, but then you're going to throw them back to the orphanage and pretend they don't exist or that they're, you know, beneath you. Yeah, and we see that at the party, you know, taking pictures with Primrose. She's this, you know, giant girl. And that's sad because she's giant in stature, but she's young. You know, she's a child. And for her, like with the bow, she just, oh, it doesn't go with my dress. And it's really disheartening. Obviously, that's such a bigger, like you're saying, symbolism with the bow. The Like the discomfort on their face. And yeah the making up for it smile from penance to kind of encourage everybody to wear the bow and go along with it that was yeah that was a bit heartbreaking because they walk in thinking here we are where are we finally being accepted by people and then instantly segregated and it's like oh right no we're not being accepted at all the other big thing in the party is um augustus and uh penance so they are both, for me, you know, the innocence of this show. They are both from different worlds, but both seemingly very, very lovely, innocent people who kind of wouldn't hurt a fly, you know? And you see them both being treated really horribly in this episode. So it's quite, I find it really, like, emotional and sad because they're just both lovely and you just want them kind of now to be happy. But you've got Lavinia really really being harsh on augustus yeah and then because of that augustus being really harsh on penance and that hits hard (laughs) right 
Yeah, I feel that too. I, I also, I, I, I just, I, I don't want to stress too much, but just how much I appreciate the character of Penance. I really love that she sees the best in everyone. Like when Augustus was, I'm a monster, you know, you're not. And she does the same with um, Amalia. You know, you're looking, Mrs. True, you're looking very fine and always letting her know that, no, you're, you're not a terrible person. You're a good person. You're, she sees the best in everyone. I really like that about her character. And then we see Augustus's turn in this one. He can see through yeah. the eyes of birds and control them. You have any thoughts on that? I feel like that's a representation of him. Like in his life, he's kind of held down by this way of living where he's with the elites and he has to live a certain way, held down by his sister. So what's his turn going to be? It's like the most freeing thing, isn't it? To be able to see and fly as a bird. You know, I didn't didn't think of Yeah, I didn't think of that. (laughs) It's kind of a liberation being a bird. Yeah. So we had that scene with Lavinia telling Augustus to stop pursuing penance. Yep. Which was which was really the, the saddest scene in this episode. And that's saying a lot. Like there's a lot of pretty down downtrodden scenes. Again, in her kind of little speech that she gives him, she's like, These are, you know, this is this is my charity. That's who these people are. But then she straight away kind of comes back and says that what she's doing is for them still. Because she she knows how social tears work and that if she just tries to throw these people into society, they're going to reject them. But still, yeah, uh, for Augie, it's it's really harsh. Oh, we have Mary uh, being held captive by Malady. Oh, that's First right. See- that's right. Yeah. That's, that's totally right. But r- right before that, I, I wanted to just talk about one one last thing before we go on to Mary. When Augustus... Uh, visits Hugo's club and oh, yes. Hugo asks Augustus for an investment but not a financial investment yes. he asks for Bidlow's name and I thought that was really significant because earlier in the conversation between Lavinia and Augustus Lavinia mentions that we cannot have uh, a touched Irish girl bear the Bidlow name. So to yeah. me, <laughs> that kind of mirror spectrum thing going on, it seems to me like neither Lavinia nor Hugo really care about Augustus. They only care about the Bidlow name. That's the important thing to them. Like Lavinia doesn't want the Bidlow name to be used against her politically and socially. And as a result, she sacrifices the very real feelings that he has for penance toward that end. Whereas yeah. Hugo, he's kind of playing a power game and he's using the Bidlow name to lend him legitimacy. So Augustus is kind of, he's on both sides of the spectrum, Hugo and Lavinia. He's being used and pulled apart like cotton candy and none of it is in his best interest. Well, I guess we'll see how that plays out because I'm sure Lavinia would not be happy with their name on the Ferryman's Club either. Uh, so now, uh, yeah, Mary's being held captive by Malady. We see two of uh, two new kind of henchman type characters working for Malady. 
Uh, one who is not touched, but wants to be. And one who seems to have the power to show illusions, I guess, because he gives her the, the turkey leg, which turns out to be a rat. So that in itself is a really, really cool power. And then, yeah, Malady shows up. Well, sorry, Bonfire Annie shows up first. And she offers help, almost, to Mary, trying to shoo these others away who are bothering her. And then, yeah, Malady comes along. And <laughs> Malady is such a wacky character because she's, you know, crazy monologuing one minute talking about God and all kind of stuff that's quite hard to decipher. And then the next minute, she's just like, yeah. so did you always want to be an actress or a singer? <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it's so I wanted to, to mention, so I did the hard labor of trying to decipher her kind of, uh, her broken poetry speak. So, yeah. so, so what I noticed uh, in that scene between Malady and Mary Brighton, the kind of interaction they had it took me back to the first episode. So it seems to me like Malady is rationalizing all the pain in her life as a kind of crucifixion. And it's a gift from God, a, a crown of thorns that makes her special. The pilot episode, when she was performing on that stage, her massacre, I think that was a metaphor for art that comes from pain. You know, the, the old adage, art comes from pain, the tortured artist. It seems to me when when Malady heard Mary Brighton's song in the last episode, she was faced with something more powerful than her pain. Something truly special. Yep. And Amalia says, says the same thing. Malady felt a power greater than pain. In that sense, the contrast here is that Mary Brighton's song is a metaphor for art that comes from wanting to help people as opposed to from pain. And that's the conflict between the two of them. That's just some of the subtext I mined from that scene. From the first episode, I thought that, you know, she uses pain as power kind of thing, you know, when she's getting beat and hit and then her eyes go red and she kind of puts all that energy back and is that her turn to kind of store up energy and then release it but it seems like yeah she's heavily focused that that the pain is what she uses kind of thing uh she also uh talks about yeah the woman who sheds her skin when she's talking about amalia she's talking about her losing her dress which she mentions again later uh in the fight with amalia she's like what do you mean my dress but the whole shedding your skin thing it could relate to her face not being her face, like from the first episode. You could also just take it as, you know, what you were talking about with the whole rebirth thing. It's almost like she shed her skin before and now she's kind of living her second life as her new self. Uh, for me, that the God sent the demon after me, the woman who sheds her own skin, for me, that, that it brings it back to the theme of betrayal. So... The woman who sheds her skin. What else sheds their skin? A snake, right? As much as Malady talks in a very kind of biblical language, the snake is a biblical symbol for the greatest betrayal of all. Yeah. <laughs> it's because of the snake that Eve and consequently Adam betrayed God and committed the original sin, right? Eating, eating the apple from the tree of knowledge. 
So when Malady calls Amalia the woman who sheds her skin, I think she's referring to that the greatest betrayal of all, which is whatever happened to her that we don't know yet. It's yeah. it's a she she speaks in very mythic religious language that I find super interesting, and I love deciphering that. It's also interesting because at this point, obviously, Amalia has shown no no inkling to us that she knows who Malady is, right? And Malady has also shown no signs to us that she knows who Amalia is. You know, in their in their fight in the first episode, there's no kind of like look of hey, I know you, or, and then in this episode, it's all very, it's kind of like, oh, they know each other. Um, so I'm thinking it must be from years ago, possibly, um, when yeah. they was quite younger. That's just my thinking. That was a bit weird. But, well, well, that was a bit weird to me too, yeah. It, it, it's strange. Maybe, well, maybe it'll be kind of unpacked as we go in the, uh, forward in the next couple episodes but it was also interesting that Malady called Amalia she called her Molly yep and then uh, Malady is Sarah Sarah yeah so it's like they have this big revelation oh my god you're so and so and they but they know each other's names and they seemed like they were so close that you wouldn't not recognize them unless it must have been years ago that is all I'm thinking but I, I've got some other points about that, but we'll, I think we'll come back to that later because I think we've got that um, a little bit later on because uh, I have some big revelation kind of thoughts in my brain that I think might be totally, totally crazy out there, but we'll 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 see what you think. So after that, we have Penance. So she's left the party. She's upset. She's in a cool little steampunky um, automobile and she's heading back to the orphanage gets caught up in, you know, ye olde traffic, <laughs> which I love because she shows, like, roadway, road rage towards, like, a carriage and some guys, yeah. like, loading loading the back of a car. And she's this, like, serious, like, modern-day road rage. She manually um, honks at him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, with the little horn. With the little horn, yeah. Love the little horn. Um, yeah, but she gets kidnapped, and we see her later on. She's obviously up with Mary, and it's this big either-or decision for Amalia which is similar to you know like in The Dark Knight where it's like there's two ships and you can only save one of them like the big decision for Batman and it's just kind of like well Amalia handled this probably better than Batman did right Mm -hmm. so (laughs) yeah and I think Amalia even says I don't know how to do this riddle me shit I love that yeah yeah, it's a very Batman thing I love that, yeah, even in the heat of a fight, she's just kind of like, oh, God, I don't, I can't do this riddle me shit. <laughs> and, yeah, obviously ends up shooting herself, which, again, does she at this point, because this is before they had the revelation of the names, right, where they're like, oh, it's you. Yeah, she shoots herself after, and, and it's kind of the prototypical hero thing to do, to sacrifice yourself for something larger than just you. Like she had for a mission and it's the mission that's keeping her alive. And it's also the mission that she's willing to die for. And she knows it will have a big reaction on Malady because they've just had this revelation that they know each other from their pasts. She knows that Malady will react to her shooting herself because obviously she wants to, in whatever kind of calling back to the Batman thing, Joker and Batman way, even though they're arch enemies, they have, this kind of relationship, this ongoing relationship with each other, you know, 
It's like one only exists because the other one does kind of thing. It's not, there's no point in you being bad if you're not going to try and stop me. So yeah, Malady completely disregards everything that's going on up top to go over to Amalia, even though, you know, you would think that right now in the show they're enemies and why would she care if she's getting shot, you know? And then obviously she shoots Malady, Malady runs off. The only reason that she gets away is because of Bonfire Yeah, and I wanted to mention about that. That is, and again, returning to the theme of betrayal, that feels like the little betrayal cherry on the top of the betrayal Sunday, because as we saw in a previous scene, Bonfire Annie is just a hired hand. They mentioned that, those two other ones who were kind of loyal to Malady. Bonfire Annie is not loyal, she's just hired. So the fact that she stops Malady, that's the kind of final, maybe not the final betrayal of the episode, but in Malady's arc, it's a betrayal, another betrayal Malady sustains in her kind of downward trajectory. And now Malady is kind of all the way at the bottom. So I'm interested to see what grudges she holds in the next episode and how she kind of, you know, really enacts her vengeance or whatever agenda she has. Yeah, I wasn't surprised by Bonfire Annie's kind of betrayal of Malady. She says earlier on in the episode when they're with Mary that she can work with crazy, but she can't work with stupid. So she's obviously already not agreeing with the direction that Malady is taking things. And and because she, I think because she is just a gun for hire, you know, if if the job isn't exactly what she wants it to be, Malady's not her boss. She has no real affiliation with her. So if she's not wholeheartedly kind of agreeing with what she's going to do, she can just walk away and it's not going to like cause her any disharm. The next thing is, do we think she's going to um, turn up again and possibly, you know, do a whole side swap? Yeah, again, like she has, other than being a member of the Touched, she has no affiliation with any of these people and can just, you know, walk away and do what she wants at any point. <laughs> do we want to talk about the fact that Amalia and yeah. Malady were friends? It seems like Amalia gave her up to someone or something. Yeah, like, that's a betrayal, isn't it? They're talking about a past betrayal. Um, she says that she left her. It's almost like Amalia made a choice at some point to give her up, and then you're thinking she's ended up in uh, an asylum and been experimented on, which she must not have known about. Because, again, I'm thinking, surely, if she knew this person when they were younger, looking at the pictures of you know, where she came from uh, when she's with Inspector Mundy and seeing her, you think that she would have put the two and two together by now. So I'm thinking that whatever happened when they parted ways when they were younger, she she didn't know what bad things were going to happen to Malady, which obviously she feels bad for. I think so anyway. But for Malady, it's just kind of, you left me and she's ended up in all this pain because of it right and speaking of leaving people we also want to kind of circle back to the fact that mary brighton left detective frank mundy at the altar when his family and friends were there he she decided at the very last moment to not be there what do you think that was about do you think that's going to be resolved maybe it'll be a will they won't they kind of thing uh yeah i mean you see the scene in the end he's like can i call on you 
And he's like, well, I kind of have to as my job unless you want me to send someone else. But she's like, no, no, you can call on me. So there is that kind of will they um, reconcile. Uh, like I said earlier, in when they're in um, the station and he's, you know, Desiree's got him reeling off everything. He says, you know, was it the job or was it something else? So I still think there's this something else that must have been a factor in in her because he you know she didn't just leave him she stayed with him all the way up until the point of getting married and then not turn up to the wedding that's like a a thing that's like on your mind but you know it's not like a you hate them or something is it that's a and she seems a bit regretful about it when the inspector mentions the or he says that i'm so sorry you had a terrible day we hear Mary Brighton say, I thought I would be the one saying that to you. Yeah. And it's it's almost like she had an expectation that for some reason that we don't know yet was completely upended. There's a lot of space for that relationship to grow. So she's at the orphanage now, and that referring to the line in the first episode, not necessarily safe, but less lonely. Desiree is also at the orphanage now, and I like how she was invited as um, Amalia left the police station with her. She just says, I'll see you at home. And it's like, oh, that's really nice. (laughs) And then, obviously, the big finish is we see, you know, they say uh, the boss is coming. We see earlier on that the boss is coming. see the um, Igor-type, you know, doctor's assistant saying that the boss is coming and Dr. Haig is like, oh, why, why now? You know, you know, what's happening? The elevator comes down and there she is, uh, Lavinia Bidlow. And I'm trying to think of how shocked I was. I don't think I was, I'm kind of in two minds. I was kind of like really shocked, but also not really shocked at the same time because the instant shock is there, but also straight after you're like, well, you know, She's this rich, well-to-do woman who's, like, taken in and helped, you know, be charitable to all these women. And now you're like, ah, this explains something. But, yeah, the reason why they're actually there with the big glowing ball of light, which I can only presume is the head of the ship, the big ball of energy that's in the head of the ship that we see go over. And you see it uh, and hear it crash into, I'm presuming, the sea and down into the underground. Um, Sorry, the river at the end of the first episode. So, uh, yeah, I'm only assuming that that big ball of light is that head of the ship. But it's only come back to life the last few days, which would have been at the same time that Mary's song was sang at the theatre. So, yeah, so Mary's song brought back the the life to the, the energy ball that we don't know what it is yet. Oh, you think so? <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah, it said a few days, and I'm thinking... It must. What else would have done it? It must have been the ball, uh, the song, right? Or do you do you have a different idea? Well, I I don't think a lot of that hop- happened off screen, so we don't really know. But my guess or my assumption was that all of the work that the doctor was doing, lobotomizing the brains of the touched, I think maybe he might have harvested some spark in their brain or something. To figure out, ah. to figure out how to uh, jog up that machine. Okay, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think we'll see more about that later. I was also surprised, like you, that Lavinia kind of was revealed in that elevator, but I wasn't 
as surprised because I felt prepared for that moment throughout this episode. What I was wondering is what that glowing ball was. And you're mentioning it's the alien ship. Maybe it is an alien ship. I had no idea what that was. I think just looking back to the first episode, the the ship that comes down at the very front is like this big ball of of like bluish energy. Oh, okay. Type looking. And I think, yeah, I can only assume, for me, I'm thinking, well, it must be that. I have like <laughs> another wild theory because now that we know that Amalia and um, Malady knew each other when they were younger and everything that they've gone through, I can't help but think that if this is some kind of alien out of this world thing, that they both, uh, as we know them now, Sarah and Molly, were here first, kind of before all of this, and that maybe they know about whatever this entity is. I feel like it would give reason for... Amalia to have had a troubled life and maybe, I don't know, you know when you just start thinking about aliens and stuff that they've been sent here years ago and they had a mission of some kind and it went wrong and, you know, Malady ended up being put in an asylum from having a breakdown or something and Amalia then just lived like a regular life but it didn't work out and she gets to this point where this mission's just not going the way it should be and she's away from, again, with the, uh, I'm not from around here. And it's just playing on my mind that she's like, really not from around here is what's in my head. Okay. And that she's got to a point where they haven't heard anything from their people. And she's, and that would be a reason for her oh, okay. to have committed suicide. And then when the, the ship comes down and the glowing bit of light hits her, She's really, um, everybody else just, not really a reaction, but she, she comes back out of the water. Like it's, oh my God, you know, this is something my people are here. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's what's in my head. And I'm thinking, this is probably crazy out there and too alien based. But yeah, I can't help but think it now. <laughs> that That's a really interesting idea. I never thought of that. Um you know, she does, so So the fact that they're all aliens is kind of your, your theory, or at least Amalia is the alien. Possibly, yeah. And that they were sent here years ago to kind of meld with society on Earth and study or something. And because I don't know if you watch, uh, in Attack on Titan, I don't know if you watch that, uh, the anime, uh, they send like people to infiltrate and uh, Reiner, he kind of goes, he kind of goes split personality where he gets so into the, into character he forgets who he was like he's meant to be a soldier infiltrating somewhere but he kind of gets too into character and kind of believes who he is now and now i'm thinking that with malady that she kind of lost her way and is now really messed up from being put into this world and and then like what i said with amalia this is probably crazy out there not get anything to do with it but i just can't help but thinking it with that one line of i'm not from around here Oh, well, all crazy <laughs> ideas are welcome. There's, I kind of see where you're coming from because she does say, even in her interaction with Malady, that she had to kind of give her up, which means that maybe the mission existed even before the alien ship came. Yeah, when she talks about the mission, I'm thinking, is that the mission for the touch now that's going on? Or is that like a bigger mission? Okay, well... It's yeah. to be seen, I guess. <laughs> yeah, TBC. Um, 
back to this episode. What are our favourite quotes? Do we have any standout quotes? I think I said one already. Uh, so I liked Bonfire Annie with the I can work with crazy, but not with stupid. I thought that was a that was a standout line for me. I had a I had a favorite quote. I liked the quote um, that came from Hugo Swan in, in his conversation with Lord Masson. He says, "All rumors are ugly. No one whispers about virtue." I thought that was so true and so beautifully just articulated. I mean, the people who who are virtuous or at least performatively are loud about it. They kind of, they, they speak on megaphones about their virtue. Nobody whispers virtue. It's only, it's only the seedier kind of the underbelly that is whispered. I, I just, I love that. That line was wonderful. Okay. So moving on, we're going to go to some of our listeners letters and see if they've got any crazy theories like me. Uh, so first of all, uh, we have Jonathan Vargas, uh, or Johnny the Mooney. I believe the spaceship at the end was made by Penance and comes from the future to touch the people in London. The design resembles Penance's gadgets and she can manipulate energy. It would explain why the ship disappears and everyone forgets except Malady. So that's kind of on par with my crazy theory. So this is like time travel. I do get that it does look like Penance's... It totally looks like some of the stuff that's in her workshop, right? With yeah, the energy. I guess so. I mean, she's the most technologically literate character in in our universe. We don't know about other universes. If it is, if it is Penance, that would certainly be a good plot twist for episode for season three or whatever. When whenever that would be revealed, <laughs> you're ahead of the curve, Jonathan Vargas. Okay, we got we got a a fan named Missy. On Instagram, who wrote, What was going on in Amalia's life to make her want to commit suicide? Also, I want to know how each character realized they had powers. I want to know that as well. Mm. I like this. Uh, So if you're with me, I think that Amalia was sent from another planet and is on a mission and has been abandoned by her people and that is why she committed suicide. That's that's what's in my brain at the minute. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you're like me and you're a little bit more vanilla, you think that Amalia just, she, there was just, life became a bit unbearable. She dealt with unspeakable tragedy. And as a result, I think really where I'm coming from, she didn't yet have a mission. She didn't have something that was bigger than herself to live for. And that's why she committed suicide. And when that ship flew across the Victorian horizon, the whatever the spores that were released, those kind of intuitively, inherently gave her some kind of a realization, an epiphany, a transformation that gave her a mission and that resurrected her from her attempted suicide. That's my feeling, but who knows? She could also be an alien. We'll have to see. <laughs> Um, I think the power realization is different, going to be different for every character, isn't it? So Amalia, I imagine she just one day, obviously she sees one of her visions of the future, gets pulled into it and is like, what's going on here? Um, and then finds herself in that place later on in the day. Oh, I just saw the future. Um, that one's quite straightforward. I can't imagine being um, Primrose, uh, our giant girl, I guess just on the spot when she got hit by the spore, just grew. Uh, 
<laughs> exponentially, I suppose. Um, that must have been a shock to whoever was around her. That would have been, yeah, how are people going to react to that? I imagine that was one of the biggest reactions, you know. Vis- we haven't seen many others, apart from the one that walks around the orphanage that's like a blue glowing light. They don't seem to be kind of physically augmented. They kind of all look just normal. You wouldn't know that any of them have powers, but their ones are obviously on show. It's kind of like the X-Men, you know. You know, the Beast, I mean, you know, he's the Beast. He's bright blue and he's wandering around. You can see that he's got power, but <laughs> most of the others you can't. Yeah, any that you would have wanted to see, like how they found out their powers? I think I would just echo your thoughts. I think Primrose would be the most physically obvious. You know, if I, in one moment my shoe size is 11 and then a minute <laughs> later, you know, I'm... I'm <laughs> it's like the It's like the Incredible Hulk. You just kind of find yourself wearing expandable shorts <laughs> everything else bursts apart yeah i like how the only one that we've really heard of how they first discovered their power is actually augustus you know he literally tells us you know he thought he was just dreaming or whatever and then he realized you know it happened when he was awake and he actually tells us the origin of how he kind of realized that he had a power not that he realized or really uh, admitted to himself that he was one of the touch until the the opera and I, I wanted to just kind of talk, say something really quickly about a Game of Thrones thing that I that I kind of noticed. Maybe I'm drawing a connection here that isn't there. Have you seen Game of Thrones? Uh, I don't watch Game of Thrones. No. Oh, you haven't watched Game of Thrones. You're the only <laughs> person in the world who hasn't in seen the world, Game of Thrones. I know. <laughs> but there's there's a character in the show named the Three Eyed Raven. Brandon Stark, and he has the ability to not only see into the future and the past, but um, he's also... Oh, I, I, I totally forgot the point I was going to make, but it... it, it okay, I, I'm just going to abandon this point totally, but <laughs> I, 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 I drew some connections... Uh, anyways, moving on. Next next question. You go ahead. <laughs> okay, okay. Anfayen or uh, Rudy on Instagram has a theory. He says, I think that the aliens are the creators of the human race and they're creating women 2.0. <laughs> That's interesting. This is, uh, yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of plays into my thing of like, maybe, you know, it is heavy on the aliens and they have infiltrated and this is literally just them creating a better being. And at some point they're going to return and harvest? Or we don't know, do we? Is it for them to just come and take these people? Or do it to everybody in the world? Is London a little test ground for the touched? Precursor well, to a bigger war or um, creation? Right. Well, we do know we do know that London at this t- period in time and in history is kind of the seat of power in the world it's it's where most most of the diversity is because of course they invaded the whole world and you know they have the most powerful government and the most resources so if if i was an alien and i was a feminist feminist alien i would go ahead and just imbue all of the people who don't have power and the most powerful place with power to kind of challenge that status quo but um we don't even know if it's aliens to begin with (laughs) i i I think maybe i think that's the most 
on TV, that would be the, the best solution to that, just to make it aliens. But we'll, we'll see. All right, we have an email from Tamara. Here we go. Disappointing to hear how the hosts glossed over the allegations against Joss Whedon. An opportunity was missed to have a legitimate conversation about supporting the people and actors that brought our fandoms to life on screen. The Lovecraft Country podcast was better than this fanboy swill. Okay, very, uh, first of all, Tamara, I thank you for your email and I would just like to put out, I totally agree with you. I think we kind of did gloss over the Whedon allegations, but I also want to say that this isn't the Whedon Allegations podcast. This is the Nevers podcast. And, you know, the the Nevers is something that's larger than any one person. I'm glad that you... Sorry, I'm just going to say, I'm glad that you said that because that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, I've been thinking that, yeah, we're here to discuss the Nevers and the show itself, which obviously in some part is to do Joss Whedon. But especially now he's stepped away from the show, we're going to not need to talk about him hardly at all right in the future so for me as someone that doesn't really keep track of celebrities and social media and things I don't know I didn't really want to get super into it and take it out of us talking about the show itself so I mean I feel like we could have easily not talked about it at all the fact that we even touched on it you know I mean we weren't planning to like talk about it were we no 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 I just kind of sprung that into the podcast but I do think that, so I, I think maybe it should be said that, for me at least, I don't want to speak for you, Laura, but I think that, first of all, the, the, the Nevers, the show, doesn't belong to any one person. Now that it's out into the world, it belongs to the world. It belongs to all of us. We can see it any way that we would like to. And it's not, we don't have to be beholden to any, there's no title like with a car or a house. You know, it's kind of a, a publicly owned entity. And regardless of all of that controversy, I do want to say, and I think the decent thing for anyone to do is to always listen to and stand with the people who come forward with stories of abuse. So I just want to make it clear for myself that I do stand with Charisma Carpenter. I stand with Ray Fisher. I also think it's easy. It's, it's, it's easy and it's attractive for our minds to want to place everybody in neat categories, you know? Like, you know, like Mother Teresa is good. Joss Whedon is bad. But I think reality is obviously not that simple. All human behavior comes from somewhere, and no no one individual, no one person invented toxicity, but in these situations, it doesn't really matter to me who's considered right and who's considered wrong. The fact of the matter is that Charisma Carpenter and Ray Fisher's pain and their anger is valid, and I think the larger justice that they're trying to seek systematically and culturally is something that everybody should get behind you know it doesn't matter who you like who you don't like i think justice is something that 
can unite all of us. And even somebody who might be personally involved in that situation, even Joss Whedon himself, I think we can all kind of agree that the system is a little bit, and not just the the Hollywood system, not just business and finance and all of these kind of very powerful infrastructures, but also us as people, you know, a lot of times we kind of identify with or attach ourselves to somebody who we kind of put on a pedestal and that can create a culture of idol worship of uh you know like a cult of personality of it, it kind of reinforces a, a, like a self-centered i don't know maybe, maybe i'm maybe i'm kind of rambling here but a lot of it the idea of uh, of thinking of people so highly no we're, we're just people all of us are people we all have our flaws we all have our goods and our bads and you know our, our our pimples and our and our zits and our, the attractive qualities, the unattractive qualities. And when we're given power, we can abuse that power. And we're when we're you know downtrodden, we can rise up. And we're very complex people. And um, I don't know. I I certainly don't want to be the person who is judging or casting the first stone. But I think just to kind of conclude my thoughts. On the subject, I'm not personally involved. I don't know anybody involved. All I know, you know, just love, peace. That's all there is. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'll elaborate on a couple things, I guess. So for me, my thing, like what you said, it's not our job to judge these people, right? We're not, we don't know them. We're not involved directly in the situation. But obviously, we want to show our support for anyone going through any of these situations. For me, I really am kind of, not angry, but yeah, a little bit, that the the film and the TV environment is still so easy to have all of this going on. For me, if these, you know, um, mentioned, you mentioned, um, you know, obviously everything that had gone on with Justice League and now with all these TV shows, Warner Brothers, Fox, you know, all these big companies basically giving someone or a production company, a lot of money to make something and then seems to be stepping aside and not paying attention at all as to what is happening on these sets. And that's really worrying because it's creating an environment where people are too scared to talk about it when they're there because they're worried they're going to get fired. So then allegations come kind of at a time where, unfortunately, probably nothing's going to happen. You know, nothing's going to happen... Um, in the sense of like a legal way, right? The, the the worst that happens to people now is they lose their careers over stuff like this, when really they should be facing some kind of. Uh, if people are guilty of these things, they should be facing consequences at the time that it's happening. And it's shocking to me that all this stuff can go on, on sets filled with hundreds of people, and no one says anything because, like, I know in any other workplace you. You'd hope that if a colleague or a manager or anyone was treating you this way, a a colleague might step in and have your back at that time, or b you can go to you know the head office and get the situation sorted out. But with films, it seems to be that that head office either doesn't care or isn't there, 
And I think it's dangerous, yeah, giving someone so much money to create something and then step aside and they're in charge, they're running the show and there's no one checking them. So it is a big worry. I think the film industry still has a long way to go with just making sure that sets and environments are safe for everybody. Totally, yeah. And it's it, it's not just the film industry because that's just the most glamorous one. That's the one we see on screen and we follow in the news because we love that stuff. But this stuff happens everywhere. It's not... It happens in, in you know, all industries and banks and in technology and every everywhere there's a power dynamic there's going to be some kind of interaction between people who are more powerful and less powerful and that can result in you know it, it can result in good stuff it can result in bad stuff and it's just much larger than one person you can't just purge a few bad apples to solve a systemic issue in my opinion, there there needs to be a, a bit of an overhaul, but you know that's not that's not in the jurisdiction of this little podcast where we exactly. talk about Victorian <laughs> super super ladies. <laughs> so, uh, getting back to our uh, little podcast here, we have one more email from a listener. Uh, Cynthia R emailed in and said, "Laura, that's me." Uh, mentioned that she was a supporting talent in the first episode. How exciting. Can you tell us more about your time on set and how you got involved in the show? You also said that you're a musician. What instrument do you play and what came first, your love for music or acting? So starting off, yeah, I was one of the supporting artists in the background of the opera in the first episode. Uh, It was exciting. It was amazing. So how I got involved, I'm basically just on uh, to be an extra. It's pretty easy you can go online and sign up to various uh, casting agencies that will pretty much start getting you work straight away. I've been doing it for almost seven years, so the more you do, the kind of more you'll get used. This was... I really got this job, actually, because I'm also a musician, because I wanted people that were comfortable. I mean, we I thought originally we were going to be miming to an opera. Uh, we ended up not having to do that at all, but they wanted people that were comfortable performers that would be okay on stage because there were hundreds of extras in the audience. So when we were filming, we did have a real live audience there. Time on set was great. It was four days. Uh, before that, I had to go to where they had everything set up in London, um, where they had all their costumes in storage and they were building sets as well. They had this huge warehouse had to go there for like costume fittings and stuff. That was really good and a rehearsal. Uh, the other extras, I think there was eight or nine of us on the back of the stage, and it was great. Just you know, it's nice to meet people. It's a good, it's a good little thing to do. Uh, you meet lots of interesting people, and you get to do a lot of interesting stuff and wear some crazy outfits. The makeup for this was like bright red cheeks, crazy uh, white face. It was uh, yeah, it was definitely a look. <laughs> um, and I had the most amazing uh, makeup artist as well that day. I'm a musician. I am a musician. Uh, I play guitar mostly. That's my main instrument. I started playing that when I was eight years old. Uh, and then I picked up various other instruments. I play a lot now. Uh, I also sing. I didn't start acting until I was 11. And I only did that because a friend was like, join a local acting group with me. So I said, sure. And then I just kind of fell in love with that. So... Yeah, music, learning music came first. Uh, but I'd always had a love for film growing up. Like, fi- film and TV is my one true love. 
uh, and writing, really. Uh, anything just creating stories, and that's why I love filmmaking and anything related to film. That's enough about me. <laughs> Would you like to wrap this up? Sure, we can just kind of... What are what what are your final thoughts about the episode? How would you quantify how how the quality out of uh, maybe like one to ten? You have any thoughts or feelings to close on? Oh, one to ten. Ooh, this is hard because I feel like as an episode on its own, it's like still a ten out of ten for me. Like the first episode, it had very um, it was different. Like I say, the first one was like action packed all the way through. It doesn't give you room to breathe. Second episode was much more quietly letting you get to know these characters, um, and I enjoyed them both a lot. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm glad that it it changed its pace, but it didn't lose its interest for me. Absolutely, I I love the density of meaning in the first two episodes. At least there's so much there's there's so much subtext and there's so much thematic material to mine. Um, I'm a huge, I really, I, I love, I appreciate, uh, Jane Spenson as a writer. I think, uh, she was amazing on Buffy and Firefly and I think she even did Game of Thrones and maybe she did Once Upon a Time and a bunch of other shows, I don't know, but I, I, I love her writing and I loved how, how small and intimate this episode felt. Uh, as far as where we're going next... It'll be interesting to see the kind of the Lavinia situation play out. I I sense a confrontation approaching between Lavinia and Amalia, given the fact that they're kind of using Amalia's face on those flyers to recruit a lot of girls and a lot of the touched into into a kind of lobotomization camp, into almost something reminiscent of a death camp from you know the, the Nazi Germany and all of all of the their conquered territories uh it'll be it'll be interesting to see where malady goes from here as far as what what she's trying to do and maybe what redemption she's looking for maybe she can't be redeemed she hasn't done anything yet that that isn't that's beyond the point of redemption so that's something to look forward to. Edmund Haig, the doctor, the evil Nazi doctor, or I, that's at least what I'm coining him to be. I was initially a bit apprehensive about him because it felt too cartoonishly evil. Like, what is this? What is this guy here for? And but after his association with Lavinia, that adds that it adds a bit of intrigue over there. Like the relationship between these two people, what their agendas are, what exactly they're trying to do with that huge glowing orb. That'll be interesting to see. And um, I think that's just about it. Well, I guess we'll continue the rest in the third episode. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be, yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot uh, to find out. Like, say, we've got, you know, uh, the relationship between Mary and... uh, Inspector Mundy, we've got more to learn, I guess, about Malady and Amalia. We've got more to learn about whether, you know, Bonfire's going to come back into the loop. Um, what's happening with Malady now, because she's just taken a bit of a blow. And more about Lavinia and what the Doctor's getting up to. And also we've got 
I guess, the repercussions of Augie going to the Ferryman Club and lending his name. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got a lot of repercussions uh, happening. I also, so, yeah. I also do wonder if the uh, the attempt to kid to kidnap Myrtle Haplish in the very first episode was done at Lavinia's instruction, because I think they were trying to, or at least Amalia was trying to figure out where that information leaked, or who she asked the Beggar King to find that information for her, but. If it was leaked from her own camp, Lavinia has access to that information. Those are her goons that are doing that. So I think maybe they'll use the Beggar King as a vehicle to expose Lavinia to Amalia. And that is going to be a very significant confrontation, is my prediction, in the next however many episodes there's there's going to be a standoff between the two of them and it's going to be very interesting to see the conversation that they have right so wrapping up yeah so you can find us on apple podcasts google podcasts stitcher soundcloud amazon music podcasts youtube and wherever else you stream your podcasts for more Nevers-related content, uh, you can find us on the web at hbothenevers.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hbothenevers, and the Nevers podcast, and then at the Nevers podcast without the A uh, on Twitter. Any comments or questions to the Nevers podcast at gmail.com, and please rate and review our podcast and help us move up the charts. Uh, so yeah, that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Chirag for joining me today and sharing your thoughts on the second episode of The Nevers. Chirag, where, where can we find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find me at Mayan Mailman on Twitter. And, um, you know, be sure to tune in next week. We'll be discussing the third episode of The Nevers, titled Ignition. Penance creates an amplifier to spread Mary's hope-inspiring song across the city as danger mounts against her group. Amalia will proposition an unlikely ally and set out to expand the orphanage's reach. That's a little sneak peek summary for you guys for the next week. So yeah, thanks again for listening. So I'm Laura and you can find me at LauraJP1721 on Instagram. And if, like uh, Cynthia, you are interested in any of my music uh, endeavours... You can find my little duo with Sean, who was on the show last week, uh, on Facebook. We're called The Sidekicks, and that's kicks, just K-I-K-S. So yeah, thanks again for listening, and this has been The Never Podcast. Awesome. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy. 
Warner Media Entertainment or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. You know, I so, didn't, yeah, I didn't think of, yeah, I didn't think of that. <laughs> it's kind of a liberation being a bird. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the way if, if my, if my older sister treated me like that, I feel like, and I was in his shoes and I had that power, I would just like, if I was him, I would unleash just a hail of bird shit everywhere my sister goes. <laughs> you know, like in cartoons, <laughs> when that rain cloud follows you wherever you go? Yeah. That, but with bird shit. Like, anytime someone says something I don't like, a bird shits on, on their fucking nose. How about that? <laughs> and no one would know. No one's going to think, hey, I wonder if that bird is so-and-so, you know. Exactly. <laughs> no one would know. So we had yeah, that so- scene. 